I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Last week we focused on verses 15 and 16 and the supremacy of Christ and really in large part that theme is going to continue this morning in our passage which is verse 17 through the first part of verse 18. I don't know if I've ever stopped in the middle of a verse but that's what we're going to do today. 17 into the middle of verse 18, and here we see in these verses that the Apostle Paul continues to unfold the matchless supremacy of Christ, though today's passage does add a different perspective to Paul's teaching. So, I invite you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. We're going to start in verse 15, which is the beginning of that paragraph, and we're going to read through the middle of verse 18. This is what the Holy Spirit of God says to the church, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together. God, we would ask you now that you would help us to understand your word. Lord, we know that on our own, not only do we not understand the things of your word, we we would have no desire to understand. We would be very content in our own wisdom. We would be very content in our own limited understanding of the way that you have made things. And so... Even as we gather now for the next few moments to think about what the Bible is saying here, we are acknowledging our need for you to understand both life and this world that you have made. We're acknowledging our need for you to tell us truth. Because apart from you, God, we would not know. And so would you help us now by your Holy Spirit? Would you help us, God, to understand the things of the Scriptures and how they reveal to us the glory and the greatness of Christ and how they reveal to us our need for a Savior and your willingness to provide one. Father, please help me to speak things that are true and faithful and accurate to your word. Lord, please give us humble hearts to listen. God, surely among us today, some of us have come here, Lord, with hearts that are perhaps cold or hard and have very little interest to hear from the word of God. Would you humble us, Father? Would you soften our hearts? Would you give us a willingness, even for just these few moments now, to consider what it is that the Scriptures declare? And to consider, Father, even the thought that you might might know better than we do how life ought to be lived in this world. We ask these things, Father, for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. In His name we pray. Amen. In 1543 a Polish astronomer published a book that redefined how people view the world. The astronomer, of course, was Nicholas Copernicus, and his idea was revolutionary in more ways than one. Copernicus declared that the sun, rather than the earth, stood at the center of the solar system, and therefore all the planets were maintained in proper orbit by the centralizing force of the sun. Life depended upon the sun, not upon the earth. 
the effects of Copernicus's theory were so far-reaching that it, spa- it spawned its own cliché. You know you have made it in history when they name a cliché after you. A Copernican revolution. So even today, nearly 500 years later, you'll hear people talk about a Copernican revolution in physics, in philosophy, in management, in banking, and yes, even a Copernican revolution in football. I read that actually in print, as ridiculous as it sounds. A Copernican revolution, then, is anything that shifts an old way of thinking, often with dramatic upheaval, so that something new becomes the center. Something new becomes the central point. Friends, if you'll allow me to use that somewhat cliched phrase, our passage this morning truly does represent a Copernican revolution in Christian thinking. I would say that every person who comes to faith in Christ has this implicit assumption That Christianity is about me. The Bible is about me and how I can live a better life compared to my old sinful self. The church is about me and how I can have my needs met. The gospel is about me and how I can get to heaven. God even is most concerned with me and how His purpose for my life can be fulfilled. Everyone, it seems, comes to Christianity with this implicit assumption that things are about me. But as Copernicus did some 500 years ago, the Apostle Paul, here in Colossians chapter 1, revolutionizes that assumed way of thinking. According to Paul, according to the Bible, it is not me and my life that stand at the center of God's purpose for the world. I am not the son of God's universe. Rather, it is Christ who stands at the center. Life is defined in relationship to Him. Purpose is sustained in relationship to Him. God is found only in relationship to Him. This is the Copernican revolution that every person needs to be reminded of again and again because it's so easy to put ourselves at the center. I'm the center of everything else, so why wouldn't I be the center of Christianity? That's why we need these kinds of texts, because it's the Son of God and not me who holds all things together, even as Paul says here in verse 17. Friends, it is this notion of centrality that stands out most clearly in our passage today. We noted last week that the theme of this part of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ, and in large part that remains true in our passage. But Paul does refine that theme a little bit here in verses 17 and 18. Christ is supreme because He stands at the center of all that God is doing in this world. That's the basic point of these verses. Christ is supreme because He stands at the center of all that God is doing in this world and through the Gospel. Listen, friends, there are many glorious realities, many glorious truths of the Christian faith. And many of those truths do have wonderful application to us. But the most important reality of all, the one truth that holds all those other truths together, is the person and work of Christ. If you're considering the claims of Christianity, or if you're seeking to help someone consider the claims of Christianity, I would encourage you, focus here on the Lord Jesus. If you can know what is true about the Lord Jesus Christ, then the rest of those things will fall into place. Because it's Christ that determines the center. It's Christ that holds all things together. If we want to live and thrive in this world that God has made, then we have to live in light of Christ's centrality. And so the question becomes, what does that mean? 
What does it mean to live in light of Christ's centrality? Well, let's look at this passage here for a few moments and get some some insight. In the flow of verses 15 to 20, our text, verse 17 and the first part of verse 18, our text is like a bridge. It spans the divide between Paul's two great concerns. Our verses look back to Paul's teaching on Christ and creation in verses 15 and 16. And our verses look forward to Paul's teaching on redemption, Christ and redemption in verses 19 and 20. You see, it's a bridge that helps us understand how Paul's moving from his first theme, verses 15 and 16, to his second theme, verses 19 and 20. These verses in the middle, they're a bridge. And in fact, those two ideas, creation and redemption, capture what Paul has in view as he teaches here on the centrality of Christ. Christ stands at the center of creation, and Christ stands at the center of redemption. Let's focus in on each of those ideas together. We start in verse 17 where Paul tells us that Christ stands at the center of creation. You may remember that last week Paul explained how Christ rules over God's creation. Look back at verse 16. All things were created by the Son of God, and therefore Christ Himself holds the supreme position over all that He has made. That was what we saw last week, verse 16. Well, here at the outset of verse 17, Paul reiterates that same incredible truth. Notice what he writes, verse 17. And He, that is the Son, the Son of God, He is before all things. As with verse 16, Paul's emphasis here is on priority. There is nothing in the universe that ranks ahead of Christ. In fact, there is nothing that even comes close to being on His level. When it comes to Christ and the creation, the two They're not equals. There was a time when the creation did not exist, but there has never been a time when the Son of God did not exist. He is eternally God. The creation had a definite beginning point, but the Son of God has no beginning and therefore no end. He was and is and is to come. The creation's existence is dependent on the Creator, but the Son of God is dependent on nothing. He possesses life in Himself. So as Paul says here in verse 17, Christ is before all things. Friends, let's not overlook this. One of my consistent prayers for this Advent series is that we would not simply dismiss these things as stodgy, dull theology. This is fuel for worship. This is where the drive for obedience and faith finds renewed strength by seeing and rejoicing in the glorious truths of the Son of God. Listen, far too often, our worship of God is weak because we're trying to fuel it from within ourselves. With our feelings or our experiences or or whatever else it might be. It's one of the sad ironies of putting ourselves at the center of Christianity. We end up weakening the very thing that we're trying to strengthen, which is our walk with the Lord. So let's not overlook this too quickly when Paul says that Christ is before all things. There's nothing in the creation that can diminish Christ's position. There's nothing that can rival His authority. He is before and above and over all things. Now, if this has not been enough to stir us up to worship Christ, then the Apostle Paul presses this truth a bit further in the rest of verse 17. Paul's next statement is arguably the most astounding 
statement in, in the paragraph. I think so. Notice the end of verse 17. He is before all things, and here it comes, and in him all things hold together. Friends, that statement nearly takes my breath away every time I read it. Last Sunday, Laura and I took the boys to a concert, and at the end of the show, the artist who headlined the concert read this same paragraph from Colossians. And as he was reading through these verses, and he got to this phrase in verse 17 that, and in him all things hold together, as the artist read that phrase, he got kind of choked up as he read. And I thought to myself, yes, he understands what is being said here. He understands that the right response goes beyond words. How do you explain what explains you? I don't know. In Christ, all things hold together. So before I offer you my feeble attempt to explain what this means, let it just weigh on your hearts and minds. In Christ, all things hold together. Notice the universal extent. Not some things, all things. Marvel at the power. Christ holds reality in its place. And rejoice at the assurance that our life depends on the one who destroyed death and is coming again one day. It's one of the sweetest statements in all of the Bible. In Christ, all things hold together. So what does it mean? Well, I mean, how do you explain what explains you? What does it mean? With fear and trembling then, here's my answer. This is my attempt to explain to you what it means that in Christ all things hold together. I cannot possibly exhaust everything there is to say. But I pray that this is a start. What does it mean that Christ holds all things together? I'm going to give you three answers. Number one, Christ holds all things together in that He sustains the creation. He sustains the creation. This is the essence of Paul's language. And it's the extension of his teaching in verse 16. Since the Son of God created all things, He now provides for their ongoing life. The creation then is continually dependent upon the Son of God. Why does the rain fall consistently to replenish the earth? Because Christ sustains the life of His world. Why does the seed planted in season bring forth a rich Harvest at the right time because Christ sustains all things. Why does the earth remain in orbit from the sun at just the right distance so that life continues? Because Christ sustains His universe. At any point in time, the Lord Jesus could speak the Word and everything would cease to exist. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says that the Son of God upholds the universe by the Word of His power. Because Christ actively and purposefully sustains His creation. He provides for its life. So that's the first answer. All things hold together in Christ because He sustains the creation. Number two, Christ holds all things together in that He governs the creation. He governs the creation. This is the outworking of the first answer. How does Christ sustain all things? Through His purposeful governance of the world. To put it very simply, the universe works as it does because Christ told it to do so. He commanded it to be this way. Now, to be sure, the world is governed by certain natural laws that consistently produce the same effects. 
Water freezes at 32 degrees. Spring follows winter. Summer follows spring. And fall comes after summer. Apple trees bear apples. And zebras reproduce more zebras. The natural world works according to an order that has been determined. But the Christian knows to ask the question, determined by whom? And the Bible says, the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. He governs the world so that even the natural laws of the universe are expression of Christ's sovereign rule. This is why naturalistic views of the world are so sad and short-sighted. They see the evidence of the order, but they ignore the one who ordered it. You see, the true end of all scientific discovery is the worship of Christ. Every trip to the zoo, every gaze through the telescope, every insight in the lab is a reason to worship Jesus. That's another sermon. Right now, we're just answering what it means that Christ holds all things together. It means that He governs the creation. That's number two. Answer number three. Christ holds all things together in that He defines the creation, or we could say that He defines reality. Now, I'm going to make a statement here in the next sentence, and I know full well how staggering it is. Here's the sentence. Only the Christian worldview is able to make sense of the world as God intended. Only the Christian worldview is able to make sense of the world as God intended. Or to quote one guy who writes a lot of books, things make sense only when Christ is kept at the center. Things make sense only when Christ is kept at the center. That's what I mean here when I say Jesus defines reality. The world only makes sense when you have the Lord Jesus Christ at the center of it. The ultimate aim of all knowledge and all human experience is the exaltation in worship of the Son of God. Now, that might not sound very practical to you, but if you think through life in this world, if you just do what is nearly impossible to do in 2018, and that's think uninterruptedly for five minutes, if you think through life in this world, then you will quickly see how this truth redefines our understanding of all that there is. The constancy of creation speaks to the faithfulness of Christ, that He unfailingly upholds the universe with the word of His power. The delight of human relationships calls us to communion with Christ. That knowing Him is the deepest pleasure of human existence. The fruits of imagination and creativity show us the beauty of Christ. That His glory is so wonderful, it cannot be displayed in merely one way, but requires 10,000 delightful combinations. Why are there so many colors? Because Christ is glorious. The discoveries of science speak to the wisdom of Christ that He can order this world with such depth and intricacy that it can occupy and even confound our sharpest minds. The mysteries of philosophy point us again to the revelation of Christ that apart from Him, the best we can do is grope around in the darkness in order to try to explain why we exist. The ordinary joy of home and work speaks to the presence of Christ that He would dwell in the ordinary with us and thereby add value to what would otherwise be a very mundane life. 
The compulsion that every human being feels to serve and to give speaks to the humility of Christ. That He would be made poor for our sake so that we might be made rich in Him. The heartbreak that we experience through human suffering points to the compassion of Christ. That He is a man of sorrows and one who weeps with His friends in the face of loss. The revulsion that every human being feels towards evil speaks to the justice of Christ. That we know deep down this world is wrong and it needs to be made right. And the sorrow and the loss we feel in the face of death points us to the resurrection of Christ. That our great hope is a Savior who has gone ahead of us even into the grave and has risen again to new life. Friends, that's just a short survey. But I hope it's enough to show you that in a real sense, Christ defines life in this world. Listen, friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus today, I would just say to you lovingly, but challengingly, explain the world to me apart from Jesus. Explain life and hardship and meaning and loss and death and beauty and justice and righteousness and goodness apart from God. Explain it to me. You can't. Christ defines life in His world. He holds all things together so that every bit of knowledge and every experience in some way finds its meaning in connection with the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we see how this reshapes our understanding of living for the glory of Christ. That's what we want to do. We want to live for the glory of Christ. I pray that this reshapes our view of thinking about that. The Christ-centered life does not require that we escape this world in order to live in some sort of super spiritual state of existence. No, the Christ-centered life calls you to live in this world because it's right here in every sphere, in every area, and in every calling that Christ's glory is made known. He holds all things together. Not some things. All things And since Christ is supreme, since He holds all things together, His glory can be exhibited in whatever God has given you to do. Preparing meals, doing taxes, mowing the grass, disciplining your children, answering customer emails, counseling students, vacuuming the floor, changing the oil in your car, reinstalling a dishwasher, laughing with friends. He holds all things together. Not some things, all things Listen, one of the great shortcomings of contemporary Christianity is that we have functionally limited this truth. We have functionally limited the supremacy of Christ. We've walled Jesus off over in a little corner of the world and said, you got to do that stuff in order to live for Jesus. We talk about glorifying Christ in such a way that excludes the vast majority of what you do every day. To honor Jesus, you've got to preach more sermons or move overseas or do street evangelism. And don't get me wrong, those things are important. Incredibly important. I pray God raises up more faithful preachers, more sold-out missionaries, more people who are bold evangelists. But at the same time, listen to me, at the same time, we have to recognize that those callings are not the sum total of honoring Christ. And the reason is because He holds all things together, not some things, all things In fact, if you go ahead to chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. How can he say whatever? Because Christ holds all things together. Do you see it? Because He's supreme, give your life to the Lord. 
Don't wait till you figure out what he wants you to do. Live today, right now, because he holds all things together, not some things. And since that's true, his glory can and should be the aim in all of life. If we wait until the day that all the stars align in order for us to devote our lives to the things of God, you'll be waiting until you die. Live today because he holds all things together, not some things. So, what are we supposed to do now in response? Well, I don't know. I don't. But I am going to ask you to do this. I'm going to pray. I'm asking you to join me in prayer that God would reshape our view of life so that it matches what Paul teaches here. I can't tell you all the specifics of how you should do things differently in your life. I don't have nearly that level of insight. I know four things in this world. Two of them are related to baseball, and another one I just told you. So I got one thing left. I can't tell you all the specifics. I don't have that level of insight. So let's just join together in prayer, asking God to use this one little phrase in the Bible, this profound phrase, to reshape how we approach life on a daily basis. Christ stands at the center of creation, for he holds all things together. And that means my calling is to live right now today for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together throughout this week and the coming weeks on what that might mean. Christ stands at the center of creation. As we transition into verse 18, we find that Paul is continuing to highlight Christ's centrality, but the focus now shifts from creation to redemption. That's the truth here at the opening of verse 18. This is the second truth I want us to consider. Christ stands at the center of redemption. The center of redemption. Notice again what the Apostle Paul writes. Verse 18, this is the first part. And he is the head of the body, the church. Friends, the reference to the church prepares us for the following verses where the specifics of redemption will receive Paul's sustained attention. Who is the church, we might ask? I didn't want to assume that we had the right definition of that. Who is the church? Well, the church is all those whom the Father has called to Himself, all those for whom Christ shed His blood, all those to whom the Spirit grants new life through the preaching of the Gospel. So the church is the redeemed and reconciled people of God, defined by the Gospel. Church is not an institution, it's a people. It's a people who have been saved. It's a sinful people who have been saved. So when Paul mentions the church here in verse 18, we know that his emphasis is is shifting. Christ is supreme over the world that he made, and now Paul's going to show us that Christ is supreme over the people that he made in redemption as well. And that connection is really important, friends. I don't want us to miss this. See what Paul's saying here. The same Christ who reigns over the universe, is also the Savior and Lord of the church. The same same one. The same glorious Son of God, who is equal to the Father, is also the friend of sinners. The one who was at work in the beginning, bringing all things into existence, is now the one at work in our midst, advancing His gospel, sustaining His people, and leading His church. Friends, there are a lot of truths that can encourage and equip the church. But there is one truth upon which all the others rest, that our head is Christ, the glorious and eternal and unrivaled Son of God. Again, 
If you're considering the claims of Christianity, or if you're speaking with someone who's considering the claims of Christianity, spend your time here on Jesus. Because He helps to keep everything else straight. Even so, what does it mean that Christ is the head of the body, the church? What does that mean? It's actually a unique image in the New Testament. Paul only uses it here and in Ephesians that you heard Ryland read earlier. It's the only places that he uses it. So what does Paul have in mind when he says that Christ is the head of the church? Well, he means first of all that Christ rules the church. Christ rules the church. Just as the Son of God reigns over all that He has made, so also the Lord Jesus reigns over His church, for the church is also His creation. Now the question, of course, is how does Christ do this? The Lord Jesus, you may have noticed, is not physically present with us. So how does He rule in His church here at Midtown Baptist? How does He rule among us? Well, friends, He rules through His Word, applied by His Spirit. You see, this is why it's so incredibly important for the Word of God to be the driving force in a church. Because that's how Christ's headship, that's how Christ's authority is worked out among His people. As the Word of God is preached and applied by the Spirit, Jesus rules over us. He leads us. He guides us. He shapes us after His own image. A Christ-centered church is a Word-driven church. And that should change how we view what happens in here on a Sunday morning. As the Scriptures are sung and read and prayed and preached, Christ's authority is being worked out among us. And that means gathering with Christ's people around His Word each week is far more important than we tend to think it is. We're not simply doing church stuff. Now we're submitting ourselves afresh each and every Sunday to the Lordship of Christ. Listen, friend, it's not enough just to read the Bible on your own through the week, Monday through Saturday. You know, we've only had the Bible in print that we could read for roughly 500 years. For 1,500 years, how did the people of God get the authority of Christ in their life? By gathering together to hear the word read, sung, prayed, preached. We're not simply doing church stuff. We're submitting ourselves afresh to the Lordship of Christ. I don't trust myself to live on my own authority. I need Christ's authority. That's why I come here and listen to the Word of God. So what does it mean that Christ is the head of the body? It means He rules His church. And He does so through His Word. Christ's headship also means that He nourishes the church. He nourishes the church. In the first century world, it was believed that the head was the source of life for for the body. Like the literal head was the source of life for the rest of the body. The body lived and thrived because of its connection with the head. And that's something of what Paul means here in verse 18. Since Christ is the head of the body, it's through Christ that the church is nourished for its life. Remember, friends, the false teachers who had come into the Colossian church, they were telling these believers that they needed something in addition to Jesus in order to live. And so in response, Paul reminds them that there's no other thing that can give you life. Just as your body cannot have another head... So the church doesn't have another source of life apart from the Lord Jesus. He alone nourishes His church. Life is found in connection with Him. Friends, I would say that this is a reminder we need in our day as well. Praise God, we don't have false teachers rising up in our midst seeking to lead us astray. 
But we need this reminder no less than the Colossians did. There are many things that a church can do, many of which are helpful and even good. But there is only one thing that the church must do in order to live. And that is the worship of Christ through His Word. How easy it is for churches to take those good secondary things and make them necessary things. How often we fall into the trap that in order for the church to live, we've got to be, we've got to be on the cutting edge. We've got to keep it fresh. We can't be stale. If we get stale, everybody's going to leave. How easy it is to think that. And, and look, there's nothing inherently wrong with adding to the scope of a church's ministry. I pray regularly that God would give us a holy ambition to see the gospel advance. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. There's nothing inherently wrong with a church wanting to press ahead in the things of God. But there is a great danger when those good but secondary things begin to overtake the one necessary thing. The worship of Christ through His Word. So, brothers and sisters, do you see how significant it is that we're gathered here in this room today? Do you see how absolutely essential this is? This is life happening before our eyes. In the singing, in the reading, in the preaching, in the praying of God's Word. This is how the body of Christ lives and grows as we gather together week after week to worship Christ through His Word. Look, when you're not here, you are in some sense cutting yourself off from the thing that helps you live. It's like a body trying to live without its head when you're not here. But when you are here, friends, what a privilege that is to participate and experience the church's ongoing life in Christ. So what does it mean that Christ is the head of the body? It means He nourishes His church through worship according to His Word. One more point to note on Christ as the head of the body. Christ's headship also prioritizes the church. He rules the church. He nourishes the church. Christ's headship also prioritizes the church. Now let me explain what I mean. As the head of the body, Christ alone is the Savior. He alone is able to redeem sinners and reconcile them to God. But at the same time, the church is the body of Christ. His representation on earth. You want to find the people who know God? Look to the church. Because the church is the body of Christ. While Christ ascended again to heaven, He has left us here to carry on the mission of gospel ministry. And that means the church is the focus of God's saving activity on earth. And I understand that in our individualistic, consumerist culture, even in Christianity, that might step on some people's toes. That's okay. The church is the focus of God's saving activity on earth. It's through the church that God causes the gospel to go forth and bring new life to those dead in their sins. And as those people are saved, they're not left as disorganized, disconnected individuals. No, God saves sinners into the body of Christ, into the church. You see, the church is the priority. The church is the focus of God's saving work on earth. Not because we're significant in ourselves. The Lord knows we're not significant but because we are the body of Christ. So friends, if you want to join in the great work that God is doing in the world, do you know what you should do? You should plug in deeply to the local church. You should anchor your life 
in the life of the church. And I know that that might sound self-serving on my part since I'm a pastor who works in a church, but I'm saying this because of what verse 18 says, that Christ is the head of a particular specific body of people, the church. And that, friends, makes the church the priority for gospel life and ministry. So I'll say it again. If you want to join with God in the great work He is doing in the world, then plug in deeply to the local church. And it doesn't have to be complicated. This is one of the things that frustrates me sometimes about how we talk about Christian ministry in the church. We make it way more complicated than what it has to be. It doesn't have to be complicated. Be present with the church be prayerful for the church, and be personally engaged with the people in the church. I mean, there's more that we could say, obviously, but that's a good sketch to start with. Be present, be prayerful, be personally engaged. That's a good place to start connecting your life with what has the priority in God's economy, which is His church, the body of Christ. So Christ rules the church, He nourishes the church, He prioritizes the church. That's what it means. That's what we mean when we say that Christ stands at the center of redemption, for He is the head of the body, the church. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, haven't we? Christ stands at the center of creation and redemption. I recognize there's a lot more to think about from this text, but honestly, friends, part of my goal today was simply to put these truths before you so that we might then think and talk more together about how we can live in light of Christ's centrality. I would benefit from your wisdom to hear what you think. So I hope we've done just a little bit of that this morning. I hope we've put this in front of you so that you've been prompted to think. Perhaps something today has prompted you to think in new ways about what it means to live a Christ-centered life. Perhaps something has stirred in you a desire to be more engaged with the body of Christ. But most of all, I pray that your heart and mine have been stirred to worship Christ in all of His glory. I pray these few moments, just a few moments in the Scriptures have shifted our focus from ourselves, where we all tend to have it, and they've centered our focus again on the Lord Jesus, the One who holds all things together. So as we close, I would just say to you, behold Him, brothers and sisters, marvel at who He is, that He is before all things, And in Him all things hold together. Marvel at Him. And in doing so, find renewed strength to worship and live for His glory. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truths of the Bible. We thank You for the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. And we confess to You, God, that we are all prone to put ourselves at the center of whatever it might be especially even our our faith, God. We're prone to put ourselves at the center and to lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you use these verses today, Father, to reshape our thinking, to recenter our hearts and our minds and our affections upon Christ, that we would remember, God, that He does indeed stand at the center of creation and at the center of redemption, that our life is nourished and sustained and governed and led and defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to be renewed in how we think. Help us, Father, not to be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but to be renewed by the transforming of our minds so that we might think the things of God according to Your Word. 
We ask this for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. Joe, please stand.